Warning, this is not your father's history. This is not the history your coach taught you in high school. And you won't find it on the History Channel either. No, you see, this is the history your mother warned you about. This is History Against the Grain. Your hosts, Chris Paget and Josh Weiner. We don't believe you, because we the people. Episode 37, A Toxic Brand. Well, Chris, this is a very special day, or a special week, among other things. I have to wish you a very happy birthday. Very haggy birthday. <laughs> you I should have worked that out you, before I said it. Thank you, Josh. Um, it passed off in a blaze of glory, I tell you. The numbers... Well, the numbers are getting plain stupid, but I, you know, all things consider, I feel pretty good. That, uh, yeah, you should. Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, I'm canonically, I think, according to the uh, the podcast, I'm canonically 29 years old. So, I mean, the thing is, you can be any age you want on in the context of a podcast, right? <laughs> oh, I don't think there's any. And now that we're in show business, we're almost obligated, really honor bound, you might say, to uh, to lie about our age. So, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. The well, fact the fact that I now have two grandkids though kind of blows my cover just a bit. Yeah, right. It makes me feel it makes me feel old that you have two grandkids. Is that <laughs> But they're they're very very young. I hasten to add it. Right. Mere pupae. <laughs> exactly. But we had a good time in fact. We went over um to see the kids, you know, on on Super Bowl Sunday as it turns out. Even though, uh, if, if truth be told, I had not watched a single second of NFL action all year, uh, I made it over uh, on Sunday when the Super Bowl was on. So we had it, we had it running uh, in, in the background as we were going about our, uh, our, our rounds there, visiting and socializing uh, with the immediate family and, uh, and, and enjoying everything. But, but every once in a while... And, and, you know, I, I'll be interested to hear what, what your take was. Every once in a while, something would kind of bleed through, you know, from, from the television, right, into the middle of, you know, whatever we were doing, whatever we were talking about. And, uh, well, I you know, it, it left me with some things I'm going to have to talk about today, Josh. <laughs> well, yeah. Uh, you know, it's funny. Having an early February birthday is kind of like being born on Christmas or something like that. Where you're never, it's never really yours, right? Because right. the, big, the biggest, most religious event on the American calendar is going to be uh, overwhelming you. But man, that was a, it was, I can't remember an event, like a non-political event that was as grim as that, as that Super Bowl. Just mm-hmm. everything about it. Um, I, you know, I don't know if you've followed this, but the NFL uh, in the last few weeks had this huge issue with the uh, with uh, coaches hire, you know, uh, hiring of new coaches. And they right. were all these like, these like, you know, callow white dudes whose dad was like the, <laughs> you know, defensive coordinator of the 1963 jets or something like that. Nepotism. Um, <laughs> yeah. Just like this insane, like all these um, super qualified black coaches just couldn't even get interviews. And, and then, you know, you get to the Super Bowl and Tom Brady's wearing end racism on the back of his helmet. And mm. you got, I mean, the NFL owners might be the biggest group of fail sons, collection of fail sons you could possibly <laughs> find in, a, in in the United States. Wait, um, was was Brady? Let me clarification there. Was Brady wearing that uh, on the back of his MAGA hat or uh, football hat? <laughs> Which was it? I, yeah. Well, the t- Tampa Bay is red. Yeah, so I think okay. it, it would have fit. But uh, 
Yeah, it's just that I do watch NFL relatively frequently, but it is it is such a toxic league in, in so many ways. You know, beyond what's going on in the field, everything surrounding it is so ugly. And then this, you know, this particular day, beyond beyond you know the game itself, which was uh, boring and uh, not interesting at all, it's just the the spectacle, the um, you know, continuing to have these military flyovers before the game. And then the, the commercials, which, you know, famously people tune into the Super Bowl just to watch the commercials, were so grim. You could almost feel the flop sweat of desperation mm. on, on every commercial as they tried to, uh, you know, desperately sell you on these brands in this late capitalist failing society. It was just just a, a wasteland um, of so much ugliness. And, and uh, yeah, it was, I, I, again, I can't remember like another non-political event that was as grim as <laughs> that day. <laughs> Yeah, I kind of had that sense too. I mean, we're, you know, you, you sort of feel obligated. The the TV, you know, it's on somewhere in the in the room, and people are moving around, or ordering lunch, and playing with the kids, and this and that. Uh, but it was like almost like a, you know, a cloud or something. It sort of descended at one point. You know, I looked up to see the the military flyover. Now sometimes they do these sort of you know punchy jets flyover, but yeah. I think these were actually bombers, were they not? They do. They use like the yeah, they use the uh, the stealth cow. bombers. It's like <laughs> <laughs> your your tax dollars at work. Dang, that's pretty menacing. You know what I mean? Um, it's it's not like uh, you know Waldo Pepper up there in his great flying machine or something. You know, it's like a B fifty two is going to target bomb Tampa Bay or something. I don't know. Yeah, and and I mean this has been said enough, but but the insanity of like people who are like don't politicize sports, and then they've got military flyovers going on while that national anthem plays. I don't know if you know what political means. Exactly. Um, well, and I have but, uh, to tell you, at one point, and I wasn't sure you could set me straight. It, I think it was the NFL's own uh, promo piece on maybe racial justice or something uh, because they showed some players uh, kneeling, I, I mm-hmm. think is what I saw. This could have just been a fever dream. But uh, did I see that? And, and yet no recognition, no acknowledgement of Colin Kaepernick. No, I mean, he is... He is uh... He's an interesting figure in the NFL because now, you know, since George Floyd, they've like all major corporations have forced to at least put out platitudes about racial justice and stuff like that. But he's still still is jobless. He wow. still is like I think there was there was actually one game this year where he was he was honored, uh, you know, as as a path breaker or something like that. But it's like he's like 33 years old. And he's unemployed because <laughs> nobody will hire him. And yet you're going to. It's uh, it. I mean, it's so. How crazy did they honor we, him? Did they honor him with like a parade of police cars with their sirens and right. lights going or something? Yeah, it was so just weird because it, it felt like a retrospective from this you know long departed figure who's being honored, but he's still a fairly young man who is right. not a, a given a you know place in the NFL despite being ultra talented. So, um, yeah, the NFL has a, has a little bit of a, a a problem with with how they are presented, um, and it continues to be popular enough. It doesn't seem to matter, but it it. You know, if you pay attention, if you're thoughtful about it all, it's it's a hard watch. Uh, checking out football in the in the contemporary times. I agree, and look, I mean, it's not exactly a revelation to say that the NFL has a long tradition of white racist team owners. <laughs> you know, who employ a predominantly black uh, workforce. You know, the players um, and. To see the NFL so awkwardly 
trying to both acknowledge the moment of racial justice, but not in any way alienate their racist fan base, you know, mm-hmm. um, is, uh, is almost, um, it gives you a kind of almost perverse pleasure to watch them do it so badly. And yes. Uh, yeah. And, you know, as far as branding, again, not a revelation, you know, but always famous for the commercials, of course. Some people claim they only tune in to watch the commercials. And I've never understood that because here again, it's just a parade of corporate largesse. These commercials, the TV time is famously, you know, what, triple, quadruple, 10 times the cost of normal air time. Mm-hmm. So they're very expensive spots, 30-second spots, et cetera. And uh, just a parade, a cavalcade, really, of, you know, of, of corporate um, emblems sort of trying to be quirky, trying to be funny, trying to be ironic. And uh, and yet it's getting harder and harder to tell where that kind of corporate branding and the NFL's own branding, you know, sort of where one picks up and the other leaves off, you know? Oh, yeah, definitely. And, and I mean, I, I, I mentioned the Super Bowl as being kind of non-political, but it ends up being super, super political in, in so many ways. Not only the flyovers, but a lot of these commercials as well, which are, uh, you know, aiming for... Uh, to, to hit people in a, in a particular place, um, the ones that are not ironic and quirky, which is like 90% of them now, mm-hmm. uh, go for like this deep sentimentality, uh, you know, portraying some kind of America that uh, that they wish existed or, mm-hmm. or people want to believe existed. And, and in the crowning achievement of that, I don't know if crowning is the right word, is the, uh, I guess we can now call it the infamous Springsteen commercial. Mm. We need the middle. We just have to remember the very soil we stand on is common ground. So we can get there. We can make it to the mountaintop, through the desert, and we will cross this divide. Our light has always found its way through the darkness. Yeah, look, this this gives me no pleasure, Josh. I have to tell you, you know, as as a, as a late stage baby boomer, you know, I grew up with the music of the Boss. You know, back in the day, he was a working man's hero, you know, yeah. um, and now he's shilling for you know the Jeep Corporation and uh, this Jersey kid, you know, doffing a cowboy hat at the end of of that piece. Um, it's a real head scratcher for me, and I'm not sure I'm handling it very well. Uh, <laughs> yeah, we were, we were, I, because I, I listened to the commercial for the first time today, and I was, we were texting back and forth. I was, and I, I mentioned that I forgot that it was even a commercial for for Jeep because I was just listening to the audio, and it was, it was bad enough that the, the, te- you know, the text of the commercial was bad enough, and then realizing, oh, this is all in service of selling this massive gas guzzling death machine uh just makes it even like it wasn't a commercial for for the middle it was a commercial for uh for this machine but uh yeah yeah, look when corporate america tries to do sincere it's mm. cringeworthy you know if not outright infuriating and to co-opt a dude like springsteen you know who heretofore as i say has at least in his music and his messaging as as always you know been sort of the emblem of the working person you know or mm-hmm. it was he was you know famous in the 80s for his his anti-vietnam war 
you know, uh, um, song and, and uh, you know, so I, listen, I don't mind a guy trying to grab a paycheck and, and apparently it's the first commercial he's done, but, you know, not a promising start. <laughs> really not. <laughs> and, and the theme, the messaging, and I don't know who wrote it. I mean, certainly Bruce, you know. Well, can, supposedly, yeah, supposedly he had a big hand in it. That okay, he was, I was going to say, because he can drag yeah. a pen across the page without any problem, yeah. you know, but... Uh, the theme of finding, you know, the middle and then the middle is good, you know, was really just too much uh, for this one because, you know, we've talked about this on Hag Josh and this this idea of, of um, you know, sort of apparent even handedness or mm-hmm. both sides ism. Uh, you know, the middle suggests that that what that there's there are somehow two sides in America and they both need to. You know, to meet somewhere in the middle. Well, well, listen, you know, um, you know, if you're talking about, for example, you know, uh, victims of police uh, brutality and, and, you know, victims of, of police killings, which is what, you know, instigated last summer's uh, racial justice moment. And, and I assume what Jeep is trying to somehow capitalize on here. Uh, although they're picking the, the center spot in Kansas doesn't exactly evoke that kind of, <laughs> you know, the white, you know, the whitest place in America, <laughs> but let's say that's what they're trying to do. You know, that, that what, you know, as if what George Floyd's supposed to get up off that street and meet Derek Chauvin somewhere in the middle, you know, mm-hmm. and call it even, I mean, it's absurd. This yeah. idea that the real problem is we've just lost the ability to come together when you talk about, you know, uh, longstanding systems of oppression, brutality, violence, force, you know, being used against uh, people of color, um, you know, poor people, etc. That that somehow once you advocate for their cause, you're doing something that takes America out of the middle and thus it's incumbent upon you to somehow come back to that middle. So yeah, Bruce, what are you doing, brother? <laughs> well, and and the idea that the middle is some inherent place that we can all identify, you know, so yes, right. the, 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 the conceit of the commercial is this was literally the middle point of the, of the lower, lower 48 states. Um, but that's not true in any other way that the middle right. is some identifiable place. Right. And, you know, like we've talked about with, you know, the both sidesism of like the New York Times and, and, and media in general, um, that that neutral position is also very political. Right. It's not like you can mm-hmm. you can go to this place and you're outside politics and you're outside uh, these these debates and discussions. Um, there's like a purity to being in that place. No, that's, you know, putting placing the middle of the country in a in a Christian church in the middle of Kansas is, <laughs> I mean, for me as a uh, somebody raised Jewish, that's not a, a, an image that particularly has any appeal to me. And, you know, the idea he says in the commercial, everybody's welcome here. I'm like, really? I don't know that that's true. <laughs> hey, listen, I'm not going to suggest any of our black or brown friends head out to Kansas anytime soon. You know mm. what I mean? Um, yeah, it's just so strange. At one point he says in that piece that, that we played, you know, we're standing on ground that is common ground. And mm-hmm. I thought, oh boy, you know, it could have easily been uh, stolen ground or native yeah. ground maybe there in the plains, you know, right. uh, but it doesn't seem to be any particular sense of that. And and so, look, uh, you know, I, I, I want to celebrate <laughs> certain things at least, I guess as much as the next. I don't want to just be a buzzkill, you know, mm-hmm. but it's hard to take something like that and not um, 
you know, just feel pretty awful about it, I think. Yeah. And, you know, where we want to now go with this is that the kind of branding we saw, you know, throughout the Super Bowl and the kind of branding we're, we're all so accustomed to seeing because we're just inundated by it every, every day um, is not that different than the kind of branding that goes into constructing constructing history. And, and so where we want to go now is talk about history as a brand. Let's do it. Okay, well, listen, uh, I think that when we say, you know, constructing history as a brand, you know, even the Super Bowl ad with with Bruce uh, presented a certain narrative of America's past. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. And I mean, again, like, as you pointed out, the idea that this is uh, common ground uh, when it's literally ground stolen from from Native peoples who are who are, uh, right. used to uh I don't know, I was going to say possessed, but you t- used to, uh, you know, live off that land is, is again, one of those things that happens when you have, I, I'm guessing a bunch of white people in the writer's room who can't possibly imagine that somebody could, could see things differently than, than they're presenting it. Um, yeah. So, I mean, it very much fits in with the, with the way U.S. history has been told and, and so much of history in general mm-hmm. um, has been told, which is um, it presents a very particular view, one that's meant to uh, get across a, a, a certain message and when you question that message, you're accused of politicizing history or, or whatever other charge is, uh, is, is going to be leveled at you. So it's a great, you know, stand in for for the worst kind of history, I would say. Yeah, and I think uh, that's absolutely right. And I think that more often than we realize, the branding becomes the history and the history becomes the branding. And, and, and mm-hmm. just an example there with the, the Super Bowl commercial, we're going to look at some other examples. But, you know, part of me, you know, I guess wants to, you know, reinforce this idea that it's almost so ever present in the popular culture, you know, in the marketing and, in, and yeah, even in the corporate branding, that, that, that kind of standard version history we get. Uh, in glimpses and, and little sound bites and little vignettes and little, you know, uh, cinematic shots uh, and such, that it that it becomes almost like, you know, the wallpaper uh, of our lives. And in its own way, as much as what actual historians do, the books they write or the lectures they give, you know, it's in that market of culture, that popular marketplace of American culture, that this story, I think, just gets you know, recycled and, and recycled and, and recycled. And that makes it in some ways even even more, not only more intractable, more difficult to sort of dislodge and, and, and you know, and to, to sort of pull pull away from. But it also is, as we're going to suggest today, and we've been suggesting, I guess, since episode one of History Against the Grain, that, um, you know, it does a lot of damage, too. And in fact, I, I want to I want to quote a historian friend of mine here, uh, who I think has a, an incredibly, um, you know, sort of uh, on point notion about why this can be so dangerous. And the quote is, uh, doing history is like working with a loaded gun. It's not safe. 
<laughs> Did you happen know to know? Historian. Would you happen to know that historian? <laughs> I, I said that the other day. <laughs> that in, was in Joshua Weiner. That's my good friend Josh Weiner and colleague, <laughs> who uh, we were uh, trading some material we'd worked on in class, and and uh, I, I I pulled that. I thought that was uh, beautifully beautifully said. What do you mean by it? Well, just that again, like you know. He, I think I made this point before, but if if history wasn't important, then then those in power wouldn't try so hard to control the way it's disseminated. Right. Um, and and so you know, history is dangerous in, in in the sense that you know we can be dangerous if we do it right. We can be dangerous to the prevailing power structure, which is the point I was making um, in in the the thing I sent you. Um, but it's also dangerous in that it promotes literally dangerous ideas about who we are as a, as a people, as a society, as individuals, what our roles are who's included, who's excluded from those stories, whose voice gets heard, whose voices don't get heard. Um, it has the ability to um, to elevate people who should not be elevated, and it has the ability to erase those who need to be heard. Um, and so it's a it's a real, um, it's a burden in some ways to to do history. I, I, I kind of hesitate to say it this way, but to do history right, because you really do want to um, make sure that that you're allowing the voices to be heard that that don't often get heard. Uh, you want to make sure that you're not, again, as as I said earlier, not elevating people whose voices have been heard too often, <laughs> perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, and whose message is maybe not the one that's uh, that that needs to be promoted that, at that moment. Um, you you sent around to uh, the history department the other day. Maybe it was yesterday. I don't know. Or it was either yesterday or like six weeks ago. But um, mm-hmm. this piece by Lawrence Levine. And he's writing about uh, Western civilization, the, the the class, basically. Really good piece. It's uh, like 24, 25 years old now. But, mm-hmm. uh, and and one, one line that stood out to me is he says, college curricula do not exist apart from the culture in which they develop. They are products of that culture and both reflect and influence it. Thus, significant curricular changes are invariably and inextricably linked to significant changes in the general society and culture. And, and that's such an important thing to understand. And it's something that I think is, so often overlooked because we tend to see, you know, the ways we do history, the very the very structure of our classes we see as somehow innate. Like this is how you teach world history, uh, you know, world history, U.S. history, Western Civ. When you these courses have histories of their own, as as you were saying the other day. Mm-hmm. Um, and if we don't understand that, then we just get tied into the, this kind of brand of Western civilization, this brand of U.S. history. Mm-hmm. And you know, as we've talked about on this podcast before, you can work within those brands. You can do a better or worse job within those brands, but you, but it's really important to understand that what you're doing is promoting a brand. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So uh, so that having that awareness of of not just the content that you're trying to get across, but the way the content has been produced, um, it is something that I think historians at all levels need to be far more aware of because you know just like Bruce Springsteen soliloquizing soliloquizing is that a word um, about the middle. Uh, this stuff is is actually not not neutral. That um, there are sides that need need to be yeah. chosen at some point, and not choosing a side is taking a side as as well. Yeah, that's a, that's a great point. I think it's one that often goes unacknowledged by the advocates of the middle, if if you will. Mm-hmm. I, I you know thinking about what we're calling in our segment today a toxic uh, brand. You know when history becomes a toxic brand. You know it occurred to me as I was. Um, you know, following, you know, the, the back and forth with Trump's history commission, we talked about the 1776 mm-hmm. commission and the, and a few times that Trump himself spoke out about it uh, or had some presumed to have something to say about, you know, what U.S. history should be. 
And it and it finally occurred to me, you know, because it, it was never this idea that somehow, you know, Donald Trump was somehow deeply read in the, you know, in the historiography, you know, of, of American <laughs> historical literature or something, or that he's ever read even a single history book of any kind. I don't know. It, that wasn't the impression I got. He wasn't talking about that. He didn't want to argue with historians. And I thought, listen, this guy's a, a real estate hus hustler from Queens. He's made his name and his living by moving properties, but mostly by selling properties under his own name brand. Uh, can you think of a single individual more inseparable from his own name brand than Trump? Be it, you know, Trump Tower, Trump State, Trump School, Trump Presidency, Trump whatever. Uh, and it occurred to me, that's how he sees the history, right? He sees mm -hmm. it as a brand that is to be yes. promoted, marketed, defended, not necessarily looked at very closely. You wouldn't want to look too closely at those Trump stakes, would you, Josh? <laughs> no. <laughs> so, yeah. So, okay. So it occurred to me then that what they're really, really talking about here, what they're really arguing about, you know, are, are, are these history brands. Why is your favorite rapper always babbling about his brand again? Wow. Like we asked him, wow. like we asked him. This the last call for those real MCs. You know, this the last call for those real MCs. I said, this the last call for those real MCs. Your voices needed. Your voices needed. Now, what we're going to do is sort of the equivalent here of a kind of historical speed dating. We're going to jump back and forth. <laughs> across the hemispheres, from Harrison, Arkansas, to Paris, France, from Bristol, England, to North Ogden, Utah. Because what we're going to find in each of these and other locales is that the whites are upset. So <laughs> cue the Hag News Team sound effect, and away we'll go. Okay, so as we settle down here, our first stop in our historical speed dating quest to find out what's up with all this white anger about, uh, you know, about how history is presented. We stop in Bristol, England, the scene of last summer's famous toppling of a statue. You recall it was Edward Colston, uh, the wealthy uh, slave trade uh, pioneer from England. Uh, who built his fortune on the buying and selling of, of human flesh and who endowed so much of his local town, Bristol, which became one of the preeminent slave trading seaports in the 18th uh, century, that uh, Bristol was recognized as a local hero. And the statue was put up. Uh, I don't recall exactly when the statue was erected, but it was last summer then that some of the good people of Bristol decided enough was enough they didn't want to identify anymore with the likes of Edward Colston. I came across a funny line, Josh. Uh, someone said that claiming that just because he was a philanthropist, that somehow that 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 exonerates, was like saying you mugged your grandmother, but then donated half of the proceeds to charity. <laughs> <laughs> Let's cancel each other out. Exactly. So here's the manager of the Colston Arms Pub. Paul Frost, who said he would leave it to the public to decide whether to erase Colston. 
uh, because that has been the ongoing, you know, uh, target by the right that, that taking down these statues is tantamount to erasing history. But what Mr. Frost said is he said it's a toxic brand. Mm. He's talking about uh, this uh, Black Lives Matter that he put in his pub window because he thought it would help discourage would-be vandals. Would-be vandals. Uh, yeah, okay. Well, listen, Bristol pub owners are not alone. French rednecks and Arkansas <laughs> intellectuals don't like it either. Wait, did I get that backwards? Yeah, <laughs> French rednecks and Arkansas intellectuals don't like it either. What gives? So you sent me this piece on Twitter, um, uh, and I began following the string, right? And uh, at one point, this uh, historian Tom Copeland said, have you seen Arkansas's House Bill 1218? It prohibits any state-funded school, including colleges and universities, from offering courses on race, gender, class, political affiliation, or other distinctions. That is Arkansas Legislature House Bill 1218. Um, yeah, to prohibit the offering of certain types of courses, classes, events, and activities that isolate students based on race, gender, political affiliation, social class, or other distinctions within programs of instruction. Uh, and then it goes on to tell how they'll withhold public funding of such schools uh, that presume to fund such programs and courses that have as their focus then, uh, you know, uh, any themes of, of race or class or gender or sexual orientation or anything like that. Bad for the brand, huh? All those things get in the way of the, the Trumpal narrative they want they want to get across. Exactly, exactly. And, and you know, look, I think, I mean, I guess the premise here is, is somehow if you pass a law against it, the not only the ideas of it go away, but then the actual historically lived experience goes away as well, or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, if, if history's taught us anything, is if it's if you ignore something, it goes away, right? That's an iron it, law of exactly. history. Exactly. It's like water damage <laughs> in your home. Just ignore yep. it; it'll get better. Or maybe that toothache you got, right? You know. Right. Um, well, okay, so from Bristol, England, to uh, the good state of Arkansas, uh, Harrison, Arkansas, by the way, was the town where uh, it was recently proclaimed to be the whitest town in America. And uh, some young, brave soul, uh, a kid, a white kid, stood out in front of a Walmart with a Black Lives Matter sign and recorded what happened next. If you're uh, interested, you can check out on YouTube the string of abuse and verbal abuse and taunts and threats and, and vulgarity and, and uh, threats against his, his personal safety of people going in and out of Walmart. And he showed the Walmart uh, corporate statement, which was in support of Black Lives Matter. And he edited it such that at the moment uh, that the manager of the Walmart in Harrison, Arkansas, where he was standing with the Black Lives Matter sign, the manager of the Walmart came out and told him he would have to leave the property. <laughs> <laughs> Wait, it's wasn't he in front of a sign? That's I'm, I'm looking for the picture now, but he's in front of a sign that's like, explicitly white nationalist, isn't he? Yeah. My no, that's that? the billboard in Harrison. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, so I guess in that case, the, the Walmart manager was concerned about the brand, for sure. 
but look, it's not only the good people of Arkansas, is it, Josh? We can we can now uh, take flight once again and, and head back uh, into uh, uh, the European heartland here in Paris, France, where it seems that the French are getting a little steamed up about all of this. What do you what do you know about that? The the world's most neoliberal neoliberal Macron, uh, yeah, he's uh, <laughs> reacting to what identity what we now call identity politics, I guess, in the United States, which mm-hmm. is supposedly this 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 its its own brand that's now been exported to to France and. Uh, the various people of color in uh, in in France are are you know using American style identity politics, and that goes against you know the the French assimilationist idea that goes back literally to the the, the Second Empire um, about the way that the colonial peoples would be integrated into the nation, and it was not as separate people, but as as French people, and all that entailed is you had to give up your entire identity and adopt a French identity, and that is very much continued into the into the you know, uh, into the post-World War II era of France as well. Um, and so he sees, Macron sees it as, as divisive, uh, you know, people uh, calling on, uh, you know, looking for their own rights and identity and sense of self outside the French nation is, is divisive. Uh, there's a, you know, very ugly, um, you know, anti-Muslim, uh, Islamic phobic kind of backdrop to a lot of this uh, that's been going on for, for years. Uh, and that goes to, uh, examples of, of like banning the headscarves and this, this sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All these things that are markers of identity and culture, uh, French politics, and this is not just on the right, this is the right and, and the center, and sometimes even the left as well, uh, want to get rid of these things that they see as quote-unquote divisive. And so, you know, you think of of, of France as being so much more uh, kind of liberal and, and open in some ways the United States uh, with, you know, uh, a whole social safety net that we don't have but but in many ways um, they've dealt very poorly with the increasing diversity of of the French nation, and in many ways, uh, no better in fact than than the United States has dealt with it. So it's that same kind of white fear, white rage, uh, white sense of insecurity that's uh, that's developing there as as we've become so accustomed to seeing in this country as well. Yeah, and there's a claim that that somehow you know that it's its own form of French exceptionalism, right? That yeah. that the 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 ideal of the Frenchman is a kind of universal figure, you know, right. sort of exactly. transcends, yeah, yeah. you know, race, gender, sexual orientation, and these things. You know, is dedicated to the sort of intellectual, you know, principles of of liberty and, and equality, and 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 yet, you know, I mean, as you point out, that's never actually been true. You know, no. um, and, and, and the current uh, French president, Macron, you know, has has had to kind of uh, gin up his own uh, sort of uh, right wing credentials uh, as he takes on even more right wing uh, mm-hmm. politics. Does it sound familiar? Yeah. You know, even more right wing politicians <laughs> in France. Right. Here's a French academic, by the way. And these are not I mean, because, you know, there's this idea that in France still the intellectual still holds this kind of cachet, you know, as a. Right. As a kind of authority, and so uh, this uh, French uh, professor Pierre André Tagouf said that, along with the Islamophobia you mentioned, Josh, that it was the uh, totally artificial importation of what he called the American-style black question mm-hmm. uh, that was somehow trying to draw a false picture uh, of France and and what uh, you know purports to be its systemic racism and white privilege. Here's what he had to say. He said, the common agenda of these enemies of European civilization. Oof. Wait a minute, is 
Tom Cotton is ghostwriter. <laughs> the common agenda of these enemies of European civilization can be summed up in three words. Decolonize, demasculate, de-Europeanize. According to Mr. Taguf, straight white male. That's the culprit to condemn and the enemy to eliminate. Yeah, so, so there it's, you go. Hatred so of the West, he says. Yeah. Hatred of the West. The, 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 the complaint is about, you know, this American style identity politics making it to France. But but what's really what that's really suggesting is what's what's moved across the, the Atlantic is white identity, you know, American style white identity politics. Um, you know, not to say that white nationalism didn't exist in these countries before, but that sounds very much like a, you know, white ident- identitarian is that yeah. the word? Yeah. Um, kind of politics that, you know, we associate with uh, with, with this country. So it's. Uh, you know, there seems to be a, a international conversation going on right now that's uh, very similar in a lot of places. And and I would I would make the case, you know, if you look at what's happening in in, in China with their minority populations as well. Obviously, it's not a, a kind of white nationalism, but it is an ethno nationalism mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. Uh, has a lot in common with with what we're seeing in in the, this country and in, in France um, across Europe more more broadly. Um, and uh, I mean, this is part of globalization, right? That that these ideas move very quickly and they get picked up by those who can make use of them the best or most effectively, I guess. Um, and so, you know, the most beige person you can imagine, Macron, now trying to take up this uh, kind of identity politics of his own is, uh, is a sign of, of how much this, this has spread, I, I think. I think, it, I think it definitely is. You know, our, our guest on the last episode, Jeremy Best, um, had, had made that point about white identitarian you know, politics, he, he, you know, he says, you know, these things go through a kind of uh, of cycle where, you know, someone will talk about, say, white power, and then it becomes, you know, delegitimized, let's say, in the popular culture. Yeah. So then it moves on to white nationalism. And for a while, it enjoys a vogue that way. And then Jeremy said, you know, that eventually runs its course and, and becomes illegitimate or something. And then uh, you get white identitarian. And so people don't, it seems kind of new, kind of novel, kind of righteous, mm-hmm. maybe, you know, we're mad as hell, we white folks, and we don't want to take it anymore kind of thing. And so it it calls itself by a new name, maybe, but it's really an old, you know, an old kind of reaction. Uh, let me finish with uh, another Frenchman before we take off again. <laughs> <clears throat> this was um, from the south of France uh, in a town that also had its own uh, statue controversy, not unlike Bristol, England. Getting rid of statues won't erase horrible crimes that have been committed, Mr. Fetchu said, he being the mayor of this uh, South uh, French town. Not only do you not change history, but you also deprive yourself of ways of explaining it. And so here's the kind of principled white identitarian saying, well, we don't want to get rid of these racist statues because then how will we talk about the history that they represent? And so, Josh, I want to ask you, after all, who would argue that a fine, dignified, romanticized, heroic visionary, larger-than-life bronze statue of the people responsible for the horrible crimes of which Mr. Fetu just referred, who would argue that that's not a perfectly legitimate explanation of history? <laughs> yeah, no. But the crazy, the crazy thing is that you know, because you hear that so often that if we take the statues down, then we we don't get to see that you know we don't see the history. We don't. 
but it's not like we're having these deep conversations about these racist statues while they're up. Like, it's not like, right. you know, there's, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, discussion going on about, well, here's this statue, but let's talk about race. And then when you try to talk about race and racism, they're like, no, 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 you can't talk about that. That's now illegal in the schools to do that kind of stuff. So um, it's such a, a, a blatant, uh, you know, um, distraction to, to, to say that somehow this is a racing history. We can't do this history if we take these statues down because we're not doing it anyway. Uh, so we might as well get rid of these awful people and stop uh, putting them in. And once again, I mean, your point, I think, is well taken earlier where you said this sort of neutrality pretending, you know, uh, some kind of um, nonpartisan, you know, kind of masquerading neutrality, presenting a, a kind mm-hmm. of non, ostensibly nonpartisan. This is just the past. These are just objective facts or something. Um and and thus, when someone presumes to to say, well, no, no, they're not. They're actually powerfully symbolic of these, you know, these genocidal practices or what have you. Uh, you know, there's almost a sense now in the white identitarian, you know, camp that 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 their rights and their uh, guarantees are somehow being infringed upon by the very suggestion. That it's something more than a perfectly neutral symbol of something, you know, some Springsteenian <laughs> center oh ground or middle ground. You truly ground. have broke with the boss. <laughs> um, so before we head back over the Atlantic, I want to stop once again back in Bristol. This is Nick Morris, a Bristol native who works for the National Health Service, okay? He says, some are elated about the statue coming down. Some are confused, that referring to, the again, the Edward Colson statue. And mm-hmm. some are very fearful and angry. Fearful and angry because the statue of a slave trader. Now, who would be left afraid by not having a slave trader <laughs> in the public square? I don't know. The mayor, Marvin Reese, uh, said, some people are saying Colston is Bristol, and therefore Colston is me. And if you take that statue down, you are taking something of me down. But as it turns out, Marvin Reese, the mayor of, of Bristol, he's actually the, the son of Jamaican immigrants to mm. England. So he didn't see that Edward Colston is me the same way that Mr. Morris, the National Health Service worker, seemed to. But, you know, that's my point, right, is that you get in this white identitarian moment this sort of, and I, well, look, okay, I don't want to, you know, to, you know, lead. I, I do want to ask you a question. I don't want to be just a terribly leading question, but who am I kidding? <laughs> uh, that in this white identitarian moment, what sort of um, claim is it for these folks, the, you know, these white folks who identify as white folks and in, uh, you know, a white branded history, for them to claim that somehow now they are being victimized? What do you, what do you think of that? Well, I mean, the thing that's, that stands out right away is if you're saying that if you take down a statue of a, of a famous slave trader, then you're going after me next, it's kind of telling on yourself a little bit, right? <laughs> With, right? <laughs> uh, yeah, but if they can go after him, then they can go after any. Well, yeah, I guess they can go after anyone as long as you're you know, a horrific uh, monster who, who's bought and sold people as a way to make your fortune. Um, but you know, if your conscience is clear, <laughs> then I, I don't think you'd be as worried by by the prospect of of getting rid of these uh, these symbols of of racism and imperialism and the slave trade and and the horrible injustices of the past that not only are of the past but continue to um, exist in in the present as well. It's uh, you know, at some point you got to ask, well, why are you so attached to to that past? Uh, what is it about that past that 
that gives you so much of your identity. And, and, you know, for all the complaints about this kind of uh, identity politics uh, among people of color and, and, and women and, and queer folks and all that, um, to me, I mean, the, the strongest identity that we see all the time in this country is that is that white identity that doesn't seem to want to give an inch on, um, you know, the, the privilege that the particular history we've, we've, we've led in this country and, and throughout the world has, has granted them. So um, it's, it's such a farce to attack others for, um, for claiming identity when, again, the most dangerous identity that exists in the world today is that, is that white identity. Yeah, it's a kind of sleight of hand, really historical sleight of hand, you know, in protecting the brand that way, you know, you're suggesting that the, that the real victims of some sort of oppression, be it, be it mm-hmm. cancel culture, they like to, you know, that's a popular thing now, right? Or yeah. political correctness, let's say, that, that the real victims of all of this, you know, are, are those who can't continue to openly trumpet that kind of uh, triumphal, you know, racist nationalism you know that that that, yeah. that that's being taken away from them and and that leads to the other argument uh, i was going to leave it to mr morris before we jet back across the atlantic and our our hemispheric hop here today um who said that he again being the the bristol native who works for national health service if you pull down i'll call it the slippery slope white identitarian argument if you pull down every statue around the world that has anything to do with slavery abusing people or war, well, there would be nothing left, said Mr. Morris. You might as well pull down the pyramids. That doesn't seem drastic at all. Um, <laughs> there would be nothing left is a crazy thing to say. But, um, you know, go, going back to that point you were, you were just making about, um, you know, the, the, vic- the victimization of, of the privileged class. I, I'm going to talk more about this at, towards the end of the episode, but I had this amazing discussion in my Asian history class the other day we kind of got on to similar issues as, as we've been talking about, uh, you know, now related more to, to, to British imperialism in India. And, um, and somebody brought up, you know, the way in which uh, people in, in India and the colonies more broadly were kind of presented as both weak and strong, like weak, weak. So they needed to be uh, conquered and ruled over, but also we need to be afraid of them because they're not in control of their passions and all, all this kind of, you know, these tropes that exist within, within empire. And uh, one of the other, one of the students, other students responded, um, "That makes you both the victim and the victor, right? That you get to be victimized even as you're uh, as, as you're winning these victories over the quote unquote natives of these mm-hmm. various places. You can also present yourself as as the the one who's always on the edge of of uh, being destroyed by these uh, these savages in in the empire. Um, so just just I I wanted to make that case be, uh, make that point because." Our students see this kind of stuff, right? They they can recognize this sort of thing, and um, and uh, it, it's it's not something that just exists in uh, Bristol, England, but it's something that I think particular students of color, you know, can can kind of see and, and kind of can identify with because it's part of their own their own uh, their own lives and the way they're presented and and seen in this country. Yeah, it's such a good point. You're going to talk a little bit later as we finish up um, today with, I think, an appeal for you know what people want. You know, yeah. not, and I'm not talking just those who are out to defend the brand, you know, the Macrons and the Tom Cottons mm-hmm. and the you know, sort of <laughs> political professionals, you know, or, or, you know, literally the corporate executives, you know, like the Walmart guy or whatever. But, you know, that what people want is real history, you know, not this I, fake I corporate yeah. branded history. And so we're going to come back to that here. But first, we have to finish with our hemisphere hopping tour 
of the white identity brand. And, and, and we're jetting off now, uh, Josh, to the great land of Zion. Uh, no, not the, uh, the state of Israel, mind you, but uh, the Zion of the Great Salt Lake, uh, otherwise known as Utah, and specifically a town called North Ogden, Utah, where in the, um, the recent news cycle, we were uh, treated to a conflict over Black History Month as it was being taught at the Maria Montessori Academy there in North Ogden, Utah. Uh, the good folks uh, at the Montessori Academy found themselves uh, chagrined, I think, to be in the news uh, for having given parents of students at the academy, having given them an opt-out option uh, in the basic learning of black history. It's such a crazy story. Um, you know, one, one commenter I read, uh, Bomani Jones, uh, his, his point was, you know, what this almost does is like turns blackness and whiteness into a religion. Because usually like that's when people, you know, parents will opt out if there's something you know, it goes against their religion or something like that. So if blackness is a religion you can opt out of, then um, then that that's how this kind of matches up. But I mean, it's really, it is a really instructive story of, of, of whiteness and white fragility again, right? Mm -hmm. That we can't have our, our precious little pale angels uh, being exposed to anything beyond the, the brand that, that they want, the brand of history that they, they want. Right, it's, it's pretty cringeworthy, you know. Uh, uh, a gentleman by the name of Micah Hirakawa, uh, who's the director of the academy, uh, found himself uh, on the hot seat with this. He said, it's been a tough road as we work to honor and follow each child's and each adult's personal journey. And I couldn't help but think at that point of the Montessori school as its own kind of brand. You know, this is, a, in effect, what a yeah. charter school, a private school. Um that uh, parents apparently had first approached him uh, with this with this uh, idea to opt out of Black History Month. And so he found himself now in the glare of the spotlight, I I'm sure aware of the brand uh, of the school being associated, that is the Montessori schools being associated now with this kind of white identitarian um, resistance. And so he had to walk that that fine line. Now, just to, to help our readers understand here, North Ogden has a population only of about 20,000 uh, people or so, but more than 94% of whom are, are white, according to the U.S. Census Bureau. That is, 94% uh, of North Ogden's population is white. Black residents account for less than 0.8% uh, of the population, and that's reflected in the school as well, where of the 320 students, only three uh, identify as black. So there are different fault lines here for Mr. Hirakawa. Uh, and, you know, you and I were talking, when I saw his name, having taught for five years uh, at Weber State University in Ogden, Utah, I was familiar with some of the local history as, as well. I had students, for example, Josh at Weber State, who's uh, parents or grandparents had been interned at the Topaz internment camp, one of the uh, internment camps created by the, the military during World War II to house people of Japanese American uh, or Japanese ancestry. And uh, in fact, I, I had a student bring me uh, some 
uh, sort of craft items that were done by women at the Topaz camp. Topaz was located in Delta, Utah. This is, I think, fair to say in the middle of nowhere. <laughs> it may not be the geographical <laughs> center that Bruce talked about, but but it's uh, oh, it's out of the out of the way. You got to take Highway 50, the loneliest highway in America, as it's known, uh, to find Delta in the West Central Desert of Utah. And uh, the Topaz camp at the time was, I think, the eighth largest community in Utah. That is during the war. Wow. And uh, so, yeah, so I had a connection through some of my students with the the memories and the experience of the Tobias camp. And you actually told me that you had read that Mr. Hirakawa's own family connection went to Topaz. Is that right? Yeah, it's crazy because, there's, you know, there's, I read the article in The Hill. I think you read the one in The New York Times. The Hill one specifically laid that out that his, I think it was his grandfather, mm-hmm. was in uh, was, was interned. Uh, it didn't say where, so I, we, maybe we can assume it's in yeah, Utah. I'm but, guessing, yeah, I'm um, guessing. But that seems like an important piece of background that it w- apparently wasn't in the New York Times. Story. Right. Uh, because I think it draws in some of the ironies of this. Uh, undoubtedly, Mr. Hirakawa himself is very well aware of, if, if that's the case, right, yeah. that uh, a statement that was attributed to a Facebook posting uh, was taken down uh, apparently had been connected to something that he may have posted. Uh, if, if I'm wrong about that, I'll, I'll, uh, I'll certainly want to correct it. But it was a, uh, a letter sent to parents from the school explaining that, quote, families are allowed to exercise their civil rights to not participate in Black History Month at the school. And so I found it ironic indeed uh, that he, he was trying to frame this in the language of civil rights for people opting out yeah. of Black History Month when undoubtedly his own uh, family's uh, history was connected to a momentous violation, one of the most uh, yeah. infamous in American history of, of those living at the time of World War II of Japanese descent, as I say. The reason why so uh, many of them remain in Utah was simply because the internment experience decimated uh, the family fortunes of so many uh, and they had no other recourse really but to remain you know local in effect and try to restart restart their lives so uh, we should say though that after the glare of that spotlight turned uh, on his academy that it the the policy was reversed and the uh, opt-out option uh, was apparently removed. Now, <clears throat> look, framing this as a civil rights issue was part of what we're de- describing here as the, the 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 brand of white identitarian history, mm-hmm. uh, which sees now not only uh, that these other uh, stories of other peoples outside that frame somehow uh, are are silenced or or otherwise erased, but to try to put them back into the narrative such as Black History Month does, uh, represent the historical lived experiences of black people in America's past as being uh, essential and germane to the overall American history, that representing that now under this rubric as being a violation of one's civil rights is, uh, you know, is... is Completely it's insane, It's insane. Right? It really is. And I tell you, and, it, and it's not just fodder for a couple of snarks like you and me, you know, a couple of smart ass historians like you and me. As we often say, you know, there's something really harmful about about this this sort of thing because you know, what you're doing is in effect you're replicating the violence of the past, uh violence against say uh black lives, and you're replicating that now in the uh 
you know, sort of a violence of a, a kind of stubborn refusal, you know, a kind of racially inspired refusal to acknowledge that history here in our own, our own present time. And so it had me thinking about Ogden, Josh, because as I say, having lived there for five years, I, you know, some of my colleagues were local and state historians and by and by, you know, you come across, uh, t you know, stories of local history. Uh, and so the whole thing was made all the more toxic to me, considering uh, that Ogden, Utah has a deep history of black labor and black families, you know, in the community fabric of the city. You know, we have to remember that Ogden was a railroad town uh, sitting just up the road from Promontory Point, you know, where in 1869, mm -hmm. right, the famous Golden Spike was hammered down, completing the first transcontinental railroad. And uh, and so, yeah, Ogden would be this, this important junction town where nine different railroads pass through from all compass points. Uh, and so coming as part of the, the railroad industry, as porters, uh, as stewards, as locomotive engineers, as workers on the railroad itself, and forming what would become then a kind of black community in Ogden, uh, will come to publish their own newspapers in Utah. Uh, at one point, there's the military puts a black regiment, the 24th Infantry, posted to Fort Douglas in Utah. And by the way, they'll go off in the Spanish-American War of 1898 as a, as a segregated black regiment out of Utah. Uh, and then later in World War II, the Hill Field, what is now Hill Air Force Base, also saw black servicemen likewise segregated in their own uh, you know, companies coming out to Utah to serve during the war. And so, you know, uh, not only the, the erasure of black lives, you know, in the history of this place, right? You know, the what we call a whitewashing of the brand, as it were. Uh, right. And I don't, that just keeps the truth hidden, but also then inclines certain parents to want to opt out of Black History Month under the meaningless claim of protecting their civil rights. And I would argue that this only uh, further divides, further exacerbates, you know, the uh, already real uh, tensions you know, and real grievances that I think black folks have regarding uh, not just how they're depicted in the telling of American history, particularly under this white brand, as we're calling it, this toxic brand, but then, you know, current um, real grievances regarding racial justice uh, in uh, in our own time. Yeah, I mean, it's the, the civil rights thing is, I mean, the thing that, that just stands out is just another example of, of how um, civil rights are being defined by this, uh, being defined by by certain people in this country as anything that inconveniences them, they shouldn't have to do. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's it's literally it's the same logic in many ways as as I don't want to wear a mask because it's hard for me to breathe when I wear a mask mm -hmm. or something like that. Just the, the the idea that you have any civic responsibility beyond uh, those things that that make you feel comfortable at any given moment is um, it's deeply you know infecting our our entire society. Right that um, that there is no common good. I mean, maybe Bruce Springsteen was right. We need we need that common ground, right, somewhere in Kansas. But um, <laughs> that this is a civil rights issue, and it also just points points out, you know, the fact that that you can opt out of Black History is is a real indication of how little Black History was probably showing up in the curriculum prior to that point. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm, I'm assuming they weren't getting stories of of Black railroad workers and um, you know Black soldiers serving in, in regiments in Utah. Um, 
and the, the idea that they could just you know opt out of a month of material and and therefore be be uh, be freed from the burden of having to hear about somebody else's stories is itself is itself a problem. Um, so you know even though the opt out order was was eventually rescinded, it does speak to the to probably I'm I'm guessing a continued problem with just the representation and history and whose stories get told and all these things that we we have spent so much time talking about. Um, you know, you imagine that for a lot of children in a lot of schools in a big part of this country, um, Black History Month really is something different because it's the only time maybe they're hearing about the, these stories um, that are not showing up in their curriculum or, or often maybe not being emphasized enough, I should say, in their curriculum. Yeah, that's uh, such a good point. I, I mean, it's hard to the, the riddles uh, weave through this uh uh, whole thing. I mean, the, the ironies and the riddles and the erasures and, and, and it's it's a tapestry, you know, of of, of a dishonest history. Uh, you know, I remember teaching at Weber State and talking about how in 1910, you know, the, the heavyweight boxing championship uh, of the world drew, drew all this attention internationally because you had a black heavyweight champion, Jack mm-hmm. Johnson, Going up against the you know the great white hope the former retired now retired former heavyweight champion Jim Jeffries and it was done in in Reno Nevada um, and it received international attention you know partly because of the gambling um, but you know Reno was a dusty little gambling <laughs> town but but also because of the racial implications uh, of an American empire at the time in the Philippines, for example, you know, where those troops from Ogden, Utah were sent, those black troops, where they were called the N-word mm-hmm. by their fellow white troops while fighting uh, in the Philippines against Filipino insurgents who were likewise called the N-word yep. by the U.S. Army Command. I mean, so so this fight goes on in Reno with this black champion versus this white challenger, and Jack Johnson wins in a dance, you know. I mean, he was a masterful fighter, and this this was news around the country and around the world. And he set off on a kind of celebra- celebratory return from uh, Reno to Chicago, and his train went through Ogden. Mm. And the black community came out to meet Jack Johnson in mass to, to regale him and celebrate him as a hero. And while they were doing this, he was sitting in the passenger uh, car, the train, uh, waving out the window, the, the train had pulled into the depot. Um, some white uh, antagonist uh, tried to take a shot at him, came up to the window, you know, and had to be pulled away. Uh, so this was fraught with the same, you know, racial um, violence, mm-hmm. you know, that was so prevalent in the country at, at the time. But, you know, if if you claim now that learning about this violates your civil rights, you, you take that kind of relativism, you know, the thing that kind of bugged us about the Springsteen piece, you know, where, well, let's all meet in the middle. Does that mean that black folks then have to give up their history for risk of it seeming too divisive, right. you know, or too confrontational or something of that nature? And I think that's really at the, the base of our, our segment uh, in our episode today on the toxic brand is that, as you said, it, neutrality sort of purports you know, to be, uh, or the middle purports to be neutral. But it's not neutral if you're asking people to bury their own history Mm -hmm. or to not recover or unearth their own history, to put it in its proper uh, sphere in the narrative, to center it in the narrative where it belongs. I don't think that's meeting in the middle. (laughs) No, it's not. Meeting in the middle, you know, in the story you just told is, 
the guy being allowed to shoot but missing Jack Johnson, something like that. And that's that's you know <laughs> still not a not a uh, a great outcome. Better than getting shot, but um, yeah, the, the, there's the middle between two extreme, extremes does not put us in a good place. And and I think you know pointing out the fact that I, I think it's right that a lot of what we mean by you know uh, by being in the middle means not upsetting these uber sensitive uh, you know white people who who fear that you know any discomfort is uh, it just cannot be tolerated right that they should never be forced to face some kind of discomfort because uh, again right. that's that's a civil rights issue for them um, and you know it, and I think it's really important how you pointed out the the, the black history in, in Ogden itself that story of Jack Johnson coming through through Ogden what an amazing story to to actually tell in a in an elementary school classroom during during Black History mm-hmm. Month right what a way of getting across you know what the nation was in the early 20th century uh the barriers that existed and then also tying it into to this local history it's it it would have been an incredible example and um you know i don't know if it was told or if that was part of the curriculum that uh, parents were trying to opt out of but it it does demonstrate that you know there's so many of those kind of stories that are out there um but ultimately you know you have to actually open your ears and 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 have the willingness to hear those stories uh, even if it it damages the brand that you're so you're so devoted to. Look, and if you're wondering if you think, okay, Harrison, Arkansas, North Ogden, Utah, my goodness, what difference? You know, well, you know, Bruce talked about the middle, you know, and uh, <laughs> these are kind of uh, you know places that would presumably be on that geographical axis, uh, that geographical axis of of you know Middle America. Let's say I, I came across mm-hmm. a tweet, by the way. Uh, and this actually was a tweet from Norman Ornstein, who uh, typically before Trump was always seen as kind of one of the leading right, you know, kind of political economists in the country. You know, mm-hmm. I think he's one of these guys at the American Enterprise Institute or something. But ever since Trump, Norm Ornstein has become damn near a hair on fire liberal, I tell you, Josh. Um, <laughs> but he said, and it was, a, it was a very interesting quote, and it turns out, I guess it's, it's borne out. Um, some others have followed up on it. Ornstein wrote, I want to repeat a statistic I use in every talk. By 2040, by the year 2040 or so, 70% of Americans will live in just 15 states, meaning that 30% will choose 70 of the senators <laughs> in the U.S. Jeez. Senate. That is people not living in those states, those 15 mm-hmm. states, the 70% of the American people living in those 15 states, meaning 30% will choose 70 senators. And the 30% will be older, whiter, more rural, more male than the 70%. In other words, right. places like Harrison, Arkansas, places like whatever, you know, middle ground Kansas, places like North Ogden, Utah, will have an extraordinarily disproportionate amount of political power uh, in the case of the U.S. Senate, certainly, and and undoubtedly due to gerrymandered districts, even perhaps in the House of Representatives. So, yeah, it's a little unsettling to think that the future agenda, be it school curriculum or, uh, I don't know, Super Bowl ads, you know, will be (laughs) determined by that older, whiter, more rural, more male 30%. Yeah, absolutely. It's that anti-majoritarian impulse in in this country, right? That's just going to get exacerbated more and more. And as those 30% come to feel as if they're under attack from this, uh, you know, 
this, this new history or politics or whatever else, it's just going to, they're going to retreat further into that ident- identitarian politics that we're already seeing so, uh, so, so profoundly in the world today. And, you know, I, I think it is, it is important to look at, you know, that 30, 30% of the country in, in uh, you know, the middle and the, and these rural places. But remember, Macron is, is, is in is Paris, France, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the most cosmopolitan cities in the entire world. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there's been a lot said about the, the January 6th uh, insurrectionists or rioters, whatever you want to call them. But they're mostly people from seemingly middle and upper middle class backgrounds, business mm-hmm. owners and professionals and uh, people with college degrees often. Um, you know, we, we can joke around about, about rednecks and, and, and this sort of thing, but I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but Ogden, Utah is, is a fairly wealthy, uh, place, right? Uh, you know, yeah, it's an interesting place. North Ogden would be middle-class affluent, perhaps. Yeah. Uh, you know, you got a charter Montessori school. Those people are paying right, tuitions right. for their kids to go there. Though, as people in Ogden would tell you, at least, you know, people who aren't so wedded to the brand, not unlike, and I'm, I'm going off script here, but, you know, as a professor there at Weber State teaching history, and, and I was in the dental chair one day, the guy was working on me, you know, um, had the drill going, knew I was a history professor, and decided to start going off on what was then the the sort of new Martin Luther King holiday, telling mm-hmm. me that, uh, as he, in a kind of confidential tone, as if he knew I would somehow agree with him, that, that you know, Martin Luther King was actually a communist, Mm-hmm. You know, and that this was a disgrace. And so at that particular moment with a high speed drill, dangerously <laughs> close to my larynx, you know, I didn't uh, offer much of an objection. But uh, listen, and it's not just Ogden, you know, I mean, it's um, that's the point of our hemisphere hopping today. And, and my joke about uh, mm-hmm. Arkansas intellectuals and and French rednecks, you know, I want to just finish uh, this section here. Uh, by hearkening big to one of my favorite novels of the post-war period in America, Kurt Vonnegut's uh, Slaughterhouse-Five, which was um, first published in 1969 at the height of the, the Vietnam War era, and, and, and it became a real sort of popular favorite with the kind of anti-war crowd. Uh, uh, and conversely, for what we would call now the white identitarian crowd, who uh, were never... Um, too tired to put a slaughterhouse five on you know one of the banned book lists right <laughs> you know that circulate around every once in a while um but vonnegut was himself a veteran of world war ii uh, famously of the dresden uh, firebombing the allies the british and the americans carried out in february of, of 1945 at war's end uh, a firebombing that did not only um you know uh, uh great damage to what had been a kind of uh you know, Baroque uh, masterpiece of a city, the Florence on the Elbe, Dresden, Germany, but but also killed, you know, about 30,000 people in one evening of, um, you know, of, of, of fire. And as a prisoner of war being held in Dresden at that time, Vonnegut, uh, long before he was ever known, of course, as a novelist, you know, was was it this American GI who was uh, not only uh, literally underneath the firebombing, stored away by the German uh, military in a prisoner of war camp, uh, which would, had been a slaughterhouse, uh, thus the name of the um, you know the novel. But when the when the uh, the bombing had ended, um, you know, their captors brought them up to ground level, and um, had the Allied prisoner of war uh, uh, war prisoners. Uh, actually undertake the work of digging the burned corpses out of the rubble uh, of of the city. 
And so this becomes, you know, not only the basis for, for Vonnegut's own lifelong trauma, what we, we'd come, you know, a generation or two later to identify as uh, post-traumatic stress, right, PTSD, mm-hmm. uh, what in those days was called by other names, you know, I guess shell shock or, you know, uh, battle fatigue or something like that. Uh, but in post-war America, what Vonnegut realized as he tried to come to terms with what he had seen and been involved with there in Dresden was that he was, you know, pretty pretty seriously damaged by the experience. And, and as a writer, as he thought about trying to somehow convey what had happened in Dresden, that it wasn't only the trauma that he carried with him, but the additional trauma now of living in, again in Eisenhower America, you know, this sort of liberal consensus in the age of the Cold War, where America was the guardian of democracy and freedom, the defender of the free world, as they used to say. Nobody wanted to hear, Josh, uh, about Dresden and what had happened there. And so um, that only compounded, in effect, Vonnegut's own struggle to, you know, find any kind of equilibrium in his mental and emotional health. Um, that he creates this book, uh, Slaughterhouse Five, that becomes in his own way, you know, a kind of confession, a kind of confessional, you know, of this wounded veterans, you know, um, you know, trauma. Uh, and, and the fact that the World War, you know, World War Two was, you know, you, you know, was was framed as America's good war mm-hmm. and the greatest generation or you know, the last thing you were supposed to do was what, come home and complain or something? Right. So there's a scene in the novel, and I wanted to relate it um, because it gets back, I think, to this issue of branding and and what we want history to do for us. And one of Vonnegut's alter ego characters is a a science fiction writer of ill repute named Kilgore Trout. And they're at a dinner party, and Kilgore Trout engages this sort of white middle-class suburban wife her husband's an optometrist. They're having a cocktail and they're just making small talk. And uh, this woman, he's talking about a scene from one of his books, Kilgore Trout is, and the woman said, did that really happen? Did that really happen, <laughs> said Maggie White? Of course it happened, Trout told her. If I wrote something that hadn't really happened and I tried to sell it, I could go to jail. That's fraud. <laughs> <laughs> Maggie believed him. I'd never thought about that before. Uh, and so there's this sort of, you know, typical sardonic exchange, you know, in a Vonnegut novel that really sort of gets at what was a kind of post-war mania in the United States, you know, in the business world and all walks of life, something that Vonnegut himself for a time was in, involved in. That was the growth of the public relations sector of the business economy, public relations, marketing and corporate branding. And so mm-hmm. what Vonnegut does in Slaughterhouse, uh, if any of our readers haven't um, managed to, you know, to pull it off their inactive reading list and read it, I'll tell you that, that he wraps this issue of post-war trauma, you know, uh, the wounded veteran uh, theme and the Dresden bombing into this sort of surreal landscape of Eisenhower America, public relations and corporate Branding. I mean, you know, the 50s itself, Josh, gets branded, right, as a time of idyllic post-war American life. And when Trump started talking about MAGA, it was pretty generally understood that he was hearkening back in some nostalgia myopia to uh, the 1950s. 
because that's when, among other things, you know, the battle for racial justice uh, turned up a notch. You had the, you know, the nonviolent protests of King and then later Black Power. You had decolonization going on. And so if you were inclined as a white identitarian, you know, to be nostalgic about the good old days, it would be just before all that really happened. And that mm. would take you back to the post-war, maybe early Eisenhower, 1950s uh, America. And so, uh, you know, for for the wounded veteran, the traumatized veteran, the inability to tell the truth about what happens. I mean, you know, there's a scene in the book, right, where he takes his daughters uh, to the World's Fair in New York. He says, we went to the New York World's Fair, saw what the past had been like, according to the Ford Motor Company and Walt Disney, <laughs> saw what the future would look like, according to General Motors. And I asked myself about the present, about the present, how wide it was, how deep it was, how much of it was mine to keep. Uh, and so in a world where the past and the future are already branded, the most uncertain place for the Vonnegut character to be was in the present, you know, where there were there were no um, sort of commonly understood, um, you know, sort of compass points to know because you were surrounded by a marketing industry, a public relations industry that was constantly branding everything about your life, not unlike those Super Bowl commercials, right? And so when in the novel, his character, his, his other alter ego character, famously Billy Pilgrim, a traumatized uh, PTS, PTSD veteran of World War II, gets around to finally telling his story and it's said in the book, by the way, he suffered a mild nervous collapse. When he finally gets around to telling his story, nobody believes him about mm -hmm. Dresden, right? In the 28 volumes of the official Air Force history, there was less than a paragraph on Dresden. Uh, and so the scene in the story is where Billy Pilgrim is in a, in a Vermont hospital and his bedmate next to him is a guy. And I got to read you the name because you're going to love this. Professor Bertram Copeland Rumsford of Harvard, the <laughs> official historian of the United States Air Force. Uh, and, and Rumsford gives short shrift to, to Billy Pilgrim's claims of having been to Dresden, right? And when, when Billy Pilgrim tries to tell him just how horrible it was, basically he's met with a kind of uh, stern dismissal, you might say, by the Harvard uh, Harvard historian. So let me just read to you this quick piece. He says, uh, uh, Americans had finally heard about Dresden, said Rumford, 23 years after the raid. Okay. And Billy says, Billy Pilgrim says, I was there. I was there. It was difficult for Rumsford to take Billy seriously since Rumford had long considered Billy a repulsive non-person. <laughs> who would be who would be much better off dead? Now, with Billy speaking clearly and to the point, Rumsford's ears wanted to treat the words as a foreign language. This was not worth learning. What did he say, said Rumsford? Lily had to serve as an interpreter. He said he was there, she explained. He was where? I don't know, said Lily. Where were you? She asked Billy. Dresden, said Billy. Dresden. Lily told Rumford. He's simply, he's simply echoing things we say, said Rumford. Oh, said Lily. He's got echolalia now. Oh, 
Echolalia is a mental disease which makes people immediately repeat things that well people say. <laughs> uh, in other words, here's the guy who's being dismissed as a lunatic, Billy Pilgrim, basically, uh, at best, you know, or, or worse, even, you know, a lunatic who wasn't patriotic and who wanted to tell, you know, the wrong stories about World War II, but who actually is in possession of the truth, right? And so in the, in the sort of typical Vonnegut mashup, you know, what's, what's true and what's public relations, you know, what's lived experience, what's, um, you know, branding, it all gets mixed up, you mm -hmm. know, and, and so, uh, and, and in the famous preface, you know, or the famous introductory chapter of the book, he, uh, you know, Vonnegut, when he's still doing the kind of first person narrator before he slips into the kind of third person unreliable narrator for the rest of the book, um, you know, he says, uh, that uh, he had committed the same sin that Lot's wife had committed. And, and of course, in the Bible, it was Lot's wife who had been warned not to look back at Sodom and Gomorrah and the destruction that the Lord rained down on Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, not unlike Dresden, uh, but that she did look back. And that like mm -hmm. Lot's wife, Vonnegut now had looked back and that both of them uh, were then going to be turned into pillars of salt. And uh, and I can't I you know, I can't help but feel a little bit, Josh, these days that the work we do, you know, has this Vonnegut like, you know, in danger of turning into pillars uh, of salt. You know, one of the pieces we sent you or I sent you and then we exchanged was of the, you know, the Polish court who ordered the authors of a, a Polish history of, of uh, that is history of Poland during the Holocaust who had identified one of the local Polish mayors who had collaborated with the Nazis, uh, while his living descendant had sued them. Uh, and the court uh, decided in her favor that this history was was libelous, you know, and uh, ordered them, I think it was a fine or something they were supposed to pay or apologize well, or something. Well, it's actually crazier than that. But they found them guilty of libel, but, di but didn't make them pay a fine, which just goes to show that no, <laughs> um, that they, you know, that there was no crime involved at all, basically, right? Um, but and and it just it just does show that you know nationalism and history just don't mix. You can't, you know, if if your nation becomes a brand, your history becomes a brand. The the, the big difference between the kind of corporate branding we saw in the Super Bowl and the, the historical branding that we're trying to connect it to is that the whole point of the the kind of corporate branding of Springsteen in a cowboy hat and a Jeep. Um, is that you should always be aware of the brand. You should make the connection between, you know, the feelings of watching that commercial and the, the brand of Jeep, or, you know, don't, you know, you laugh at a Geico commercial and you want to get insurance, whatever it is. But the historical brand, the entire point of it is that it's a brand that you don't even recognize that you're, you're being advertised to, right? right. That, you know, part of, part of the problem is so many historians have worked within this brand, not because they necessarily thought that they were trying to uh you know promote propaganda or anything like that but because the brand wasn't even they weren't even aware that that's what was happening uh you know going back to that the piece you sent uh to the department by lawrence levine he talks about uh the first uh, emergence of, of what will become the western civ course at columbia university uh or, or i'm sorry the first uh, western civ type class that started emerging in, in american mm -hmm. universities starting with columbia he quotes um, Albert Kerr-Heckel, Kerr Dean of Lafayette College, who's uh, in speaking about the course said, uh, we were advised not to make the course one of propaganda 
and yet it could not escape being propaganda. That once you're working within that brand, um, it's really hard to get out of of essentially telling the story that the brand wants you to tell. Um, so uh, you know yeah, that's that's the point. danger. It's yeah. it's it's one thing when you can see you know the Jeep logo in the in the corner, but you know when when people are reading textbooks and when they're hearing their you know, elementary school teachers talking about um, you know uh, history in, in in middle school and high school and, and up to college, the brand logo is not there, um, and so it's it's not as clear what's what's happening. It's not as obvious. Uh, you can't see the machinery working necessarily until. Y- you've trained your mind to, to, to kind of see through those stories and, and identify uh, the, the branding that's, that's, that's so prominent. Yeah, and I think uh, you're absolutely uh, right on there. And I think in, in Vonnegut's case, you know, it, it all added up to a kind of uh, enormous gaslighting, you know, particularly of, of these traumatized, you know, veterans, because in Eisenhower's America, you know, the brand was, was the American dream, you know, and the corporate, yeah. whether it be Ford Motor Company, as he said, or, or you know, uh, you know, television or, you know, suburban real estate or what have you, that the brand of the American dream, you know, becomes so uh, marketed, you know, that to, to uh, and so universal, you know, so mm-hmm. ubiquitous that if you were to, at any point, take issue with it, you know, by, by, for example, suggesting that it was a racially segregated marketing, you know, or that those hermetically sealed suburbs, you know, were, were purely of what we would now call white identitarian, you know, communities, that you were the one that was going to be gaslighted into, into being called crazy or disloyal or unpatriotic or, or you know, what, what, whatever sort of, um, you know, label might 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 be then thrown at you. So, yeah, that's what makes it so insidious. And I, I wanted to finish today, actually, with what I thought was, you know, a really, um, you know, very cool and, and, and kind of vital uh, experience you had with your Eurasian history class the other day. So you want to you want to go on and tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so this, this week I had uh, I meet with my Asian history class on on Thursdays, and um, you know you have those moments when you when you teach at any level, I think, where like everything just comes together, um, and it's not just about what you're doing, but it's about uh, the way it's uh, you know the students are are reacting to it, it's the questions they're asking, it's the statements they're making, where it's one of those it's like you know uh, a no hitter in baseball or something like that, right? Where mm-hmm. everything just kind of came together, and so what I, I had them. Uh, read a piece it's, it's a chapter of a, of a book on indian on modern india and the whole point of this chapter was to take a lot of the kind of prevailing ideas about quote-unquote indian history and to um and to update them with the most the latest revisions to that to that history and whether that's about caste or whether it's about uh you know relationships between uh between hindus and muslims in india uh you know from about the, uh, the the 11th or 12th century, right up to the t- time of the British, or whether it's about um, you know uh, Asian despotism or decline or whatever it was about, they kind of take all those ideas, all those tropes of Indian history, and I, I think more broadly, and this is why I wanted to have them read it. It, it really just gives a, a a nice object lesson in what it means to engage in historical revisionism, which we've talked about before in this class. Is is 
in this class, on this podcast as um, such a vital part of, of what we do as historians, but mm-hmm. something that still very much is seen as, um, you know, going back to Condoleezza Rice calling critics of the, of the Iraq War revisionist historians. Um, it's, it's seen as somehow unfair or something like that. Um, what I think this, and then what I, what I had them do is just pick out these, uh, these moments of revision, these, these examples of revision. And we, we talked about them and it, it worked out so well. I mean, and not to give myself credit here because it's the students who kind of stepped up and what it, what it kind of showed me is, is a few things. Um, one is that you can have these conversations, um, with, with your classes. And this is something that I think both of us have done more and more. I think, um, you know, I think talking to you years ago, I think you probably started this more is that our classes can end up being more about the study of history than the history itself in some ways, mm-hmm. um, that, you know, we're, we're kind of taught and we think about what a history class is, is a place where you provide material about a specific history, whether it's us or Asia or the world. Um, but the, the other way to look at it is that whatever area your, your, um, class is, is supposed to cover what it is, is just a, a place to have a conversation about history. Um, and it's, it's something I, I've, I've noticed actually from doing the podcast and talking to all these, uh, scholars and, you know, and their, and about their books is that it doesn't matter what the book is we're reading, uh, in preparation for, for one of our guests, there's always something vital that comes out of it. Uh, whether it's a topic we know much about, whether it's something we've thought about, a lot or, or only a little, there's always insights that these books provide. And I think that's something to, to take into the classroom as well is that, again, your job as a U.S. historian is not only to tell the history of the United States. You haven't failed if they didn't, you know, uh, understand the Missouri Compromise or something like that. You failed if they don't understand how vital, how um, complex, how... Um, uh, I'm blanking on another word there. Something, a third thing, as how vital and complex history is as as a as a subject, and how much it requires not just you know reading the story as it's told, but reading between the lines of that story, and not just reading between the lines of the story, but returning to the story and hearing it from different perspectives and from different voices. Yeah. Um, and, well, I would only right? interrupt you to say that that third word could be um, contradictory. You know, there's, there yeah. are very few straight lines, right? It's a lot of zigzag, and you, you don't get yeah. zigzags in branded history. You get nothing but uh, straight lines and blue skies or something. I don't know. Right. And so, you know, in doing this as an, in an Asian history class, one of the things I, I was thinking about as well is um, it's so different. The, the process is so different. The conversation can be so different because um, while, you know, I do have Asian-American students in that, in that class, um, certainly, you don't get the same kind of defense mechanism that I think you would get if you try to have conversations about American nationalism in a, in a U.S. history history class, where students often come in, you know, branded already. Uh, they've got that brand on them, and they have these these prevailing notions about what this history is and how the story should be told, and uh, when they should feel proud and when they should feel ashamed, and and uh, how we can fix that shame and how can we, uh, you know, the process of uh, a more perfect union or whatever it is. When you're doing an Asian history class with students who are largely not steeped in that in that history or a world history class for that matter, you can have these discussions and it can kind of open them up to what history can be in a way that I think is is, is difficult when they're uh, when when the only way they've ever seen history before is is in that kind of branded way uh, that we've talked about. So you know they were um, just hitting me with with just amazing eloquent 
questions and, 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 and comments. And, uh, and I think this is a, a, a remarkable class. I, you know, the group of, of students is, is remarkable. But um, it's so important to, to kind of open up history and, you know, almost allow people to see the machinery that's, that's working behind it. Um, so that they don't just think that history is this set of facts that's, you know, we, we pluck from the tree of knowledge and then, and then gift to them so they can see how things, uh, things really were, that we have to really um, allow our students, and, and, you know, I think that's part of what this podca- podcast has been as well, allow our students, allow our listeners to see the machinery at work, um, to, to kind of open up, you know, the insides and, and, and see all the gears grinding and to understand that the reason those gears work that way is because, Somebody constructed it that way, um, and it's possible to move things around. Um, and if you do, it's going to look different. It's going to function different. Um, it's going to behave differently. Um, but but not just as you know. In talking about Western Civ, you know this this idea that has always existed. You can very easily go and look at the history of Western Civ, see how it's constructed, see the purposes it was constructed for. Um, and uh, and once you do that. Hopefully, if you're um, thoughtful enough, if you're interested enough, if you um, uh, are, are ready to hear it, you can you can come to understand, uh, you know, what it means to really do history. And it's not just collecting facts. It's not just accepting the narratives that that um, uh, that are handed down to you. But it has to be history. Has to be an active, engaged experience, or all you're doing is promoting the brand. Yeah, it's it's hard to top that. I, I you know I would say that I think what if you'd allow me, you know, because you're mm-hmm. modest. I, I think what your students were excited about and and appreciate is that you were actually providing them with a historical understanding that can explain the world they live in. Hmm. Uh, because what happens with these other sort of ersatz branded histories? is that they sound nice maybe for one constituency, you know, or one group of folk. Um, you know, they, they represent triumph or progress or, you know, progression or something like that. But what they don't do is they don't explain that world we live in now, you know. Yeah. There is a disconnect, almost a Vonnegut-like, you know, disconnect between a kind of a schizophrenic, you know, dream world or something and, and what the world, you know, that everyone's telling you you're supposed to be living in is and uh, – so well, well done, uh, partner. Because I I know that <clears throat> that when you when you mentioned it to me, I know that it was one of those moments that we as educators, you know, feel like maybe we earned our money for the day, huh? <laughs> it all worked, <laughs> and then and then the next day you'll be humbled um, and think you're the worst the worst person who's ever done the job. But but for that one day, um, everything everything worked out. And it's beautiful, and that's uh, you know it's the same thing when we do this podcast. Is that um, you know, when you have those days and, and luckily on this podcast, it's almost every time we record, I feel this way. Um, you know, I, I, I come out of these recordings, I come out of my, the best classes that, that, uh, I've ever been in feeling fired up and, and wanted to continue. I, I finished up the class and I just wanted to, <laughs> I wanted to stay on with them for, for as long as it took because, uh, it's, it's, you get, you know, it's a rush. It's, um, it, it feels like you're doing real, real work, important work and not just, uh, you know, clocking in and clocking out, which is um, not the way this this job should work, ideally. Well done. That is another episode, episode 37 of History Against the Grain. We're your pillar of salt host, Chris Paget <laughs> and Josh Weiner, and we will see you next time. Nobody is innocent. It's a sin when you play.